The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. So we've been going through a series that we've called Sent by the Son of God. It's covering the five discourses recorded in the book of Matthew, in the gospel of Matthew. A discourse is simply a, a, a section of teaching or a sermon, if you will. So it's five places that Matthew records extended teachings by Jesus where he sits down with his disciples. The first one, he sat on a mountain, so it's called the Sermon on the Mount. This one is the fifth one. We start today in Matthew chapter 24. It's called the Olivet Discourse because he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. And so uh, those are really challenging ways they came up with the names, but that's how it is. Uh, The Mount of Olives is called the Olivet Discourse. Um, But basically in this series, what we've seen Jesus doing is teaching us that if you've been saved by Jesus, he saved you to send you. He saved you to send you out as a disciple maker, as a, his mouthpiece to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's been teaching us that all along. And he's been telling us what to expect as we go out. And he, and he sent his early disciples and said, hey, expect persecution. And he said, look, you don't have to beat your head against a brick wall. If someone doesn't want to receive your message, then move on, dust your feet off and move on. But share the gospel wherever you go, as you are going about your daily life, whether it's your exercise, your hobby, your family, as you're raising your kids, as you're doing your workplace, every day as you go, make disciples of all nations. And that includes some of us moving to foreign countries, some of us going on short-term mission trips, But all of us are missionaries who have been sent if we've been saved. So we have been sent to share the gospel and to make disciples as we are going is the way it's phrased. But today we come to a very interesting portion of scripture. It's it's the Olivet Discourse. It talks about the end times. It's it's very... cryptic in some places, and there's a lot of debate. I spent a lot of time reading different people's opinions. The problem with me, I'm not a gifted scholar, and so I believe that whoever the last person I read, I mean, whoever I read last, that's who I'm going with, because I'm like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, let's see what he says. Oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We're going to go with that. And so, hey, you get what you get with me, all right? So, we're going to try not to confuse you, because if I'm confused, you'll be confused, So with all likelihood, you're going to be confused today. So let's make the main point right up front. Here's the main point. Jesus is telling us beforehand what will happen so that we will stay the course in the midst of difficulties until Jesus comes back. That's the point. There's a lot of movement in here, but here's the point again. Jesus is telling us beforehand what is going to happen so that we will stay the course in the midst of difficulties that we'll face until he comes again. That's the main point. Now, as we look at the text, uh, we're going to see there's this portion of text that, that talks about a specific uh, encounter of abomination, abomination of desolation and all these kind of things. And we're going to see some people think that, that this text is all about that and that all the information is really talking about what happened in, in about 70 AD. And, and other people say, well, no, that's kind of what happened, but... but that's still going to happen. And so there's a debate and there's discussion and it hasn't been solved. There's not a clear winner yet on that debate. I'll let you know who wins when it all goes down. And so right now what we do is say, okay, if it's talking about all that happened in AD 70, then 
that will be an illustration of what we can learn persecution is like and how to handle it. If it wasn't talking about that and that was just an illustration in history of what he's talking about here, then we know it's still to come very specifically. But either way, whether it already happened or it's going to happen, they illustrate each other and the point is the same. Jesus is telling us beforehand there will be persecution, there will be trials, there will be tribulation, and I want you to know before it happens so that you will stay the course so that you will endure, so that you will persevere. So let me ask the Lord to help us this morning. Lord, would you help this sermon, this incredible time of worship with with believers that help make this a part of equipping us to stay the course, equipping us to persevere in the difficulties, in the midst of trials and tribulation and suffering and difficulties. All for your glory, for your kingdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so here's how we're going to do this. We're going to first kind of set up the context and get the setting of the scene in verses uh, 1 through 3. And then we're going to look at three simple points. Jesus makes three clear statements throughout this. And we'll let that be our outline after we go through the setting. Don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. I've told you beforehand. And so that's what we see. That's going to be our outline. So what is the scene that's being set up here? In the book of Matthew, if you've been with us, we've been seeing all throughout Jesus' ministry, he's been hammering on the Jewish leaders. He's been, he's a Jew himself, and he's been hammering on their theology. He's, he's been in a sustained theological critique of their teachings. If you remember in the first discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, he kept saying, now you have heard what they said, that you shouldn't kill, but I say that if you have anger, you've broken that law. You heard them say, but I say. You heard them say, but I say. So Jesus has been in a sustained theological critique of saying, look, they're all concerned about the temple and the outward manifestations of religion. Well, I tell you, it starts in the heart. That the external behavior is not all there is. That it must flow. External behavior must flow from an inward heart change. You must be born again. You must be filled with the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God then changes your heart. And that produces an external behavior that's radically different than the world around you. And so he keeps driving deeper and deeper into the heart. And he's attacking their religious power structure and their teaching that is, that is outward centered and focused on behavior. And he's getting to the heart of the matter and he's saying that you have to have a radically new understanding. And so in his continued, if you track through the book of Matthew, you see this intensity growing of his person or his condemnation of the religious leaders and their teaching. Just for example, in, in chapters 21, 22 and 23 leading up to our chapter today, it's reaching its pinnacle. Let me just trace with you some of that. In chapter 21, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem which is the headquarters of the temple and the religious power and leadership. And what does he do when he arrives in Jerusalem? Where's the first place Matthew tells us he goes to? He goes to the temple. What does he do in the temple? He's cleansing the temple. He's turning over tables. He says, this is not what my church, this is not what my temple, the place of worship is supposed to be about. 
And so he's showing that he is the Messiah fulfilling prophecy with messianic zeal for the temple. And he cleanses the temple and he says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. And then when he walks out in in Matthew chapter 21, he sees a fig tree that's not bearing fruit and he curses it. And this is a figurative picture of him saying, he says to the tree, you'll never bear fruit again. This is figurative of the temple will never be fruitful again. You have reached the end of your fruitfulness. And so then after he curses the fig tree upon leaving and cursing the fig tree, he says that uh, in chapter 23, Jesus pronounces seven woes on Jerusalem. And he's just condemning Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem, the leaders and all of them. And so you see it's just reaching this pinnacle of his condemnation of them and their teaching. And then 2339, Jesus mentions his second coming. He says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so he's mentioned two things here. He says, the temple will be desolate. The temple is fruitless. And he condemns the temple. And he says, but you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, when he says that, if you want to just think chronologically here, he's already heard that. In chapter 21, when he arrived in Jerusalem, it was our Palm Sunday when they laid down palm branches and they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But now after that, he says, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so what he is saying is that wasn't my final arrival. The Old Testament spoke that the Messiah would come in and the people would recognize his kingship, his his victorious power. And they would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when he came the first time, some people said it, but he says, you're about to see some things go down, but you're not going to see me again until I come. And then I arrive in all of my power and in all of my glory. And so he has mentioned two things. The temple will be destroyed or condemned, or desolate, and I'm coming again with great victory and power. That's the setting, that's the scene, and then he walks out of the temple, and then it says uh, in our chapter 24, he leaves the temple, and it says, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down, in verse 2. So Jesus is at the pinnacle of his ministry. He's at the pinnacle of his condemnation of the the fruitlessness of the Jews and the temple. He mentions that it will be destroyed, and he mentions that he will come again. And then the natural two questions come out of the disciples' mouth. They say in in 24 verse 3, two questions. Now, when are you going to do that? When are you going to destroy the temple? And what will be the sign of your coming again? That's the natural question. If, if Jesus came up in here and said, I'm about to destroy the church and I'm coming again, I would be like, wait a minute, when and what is this going to look like? And that's exactly what the disciples are doing. They're saying, when is that going to happen? When are you going to destroy the temple? And what is going to be the sign of your coming again? And so now we're going to look at his answers to that. We see, first of all, he says, do not be led astray. That's a strange answer to the question. Do not be led astray. Look at verse four. Jesus answered them. He said, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. I mean, I just think that's a strange answer, isn't it? I mean, if if you ask me, Tracy, now when is is the temple going to be destroyed? And I said, hey, don't let anyone lead you astray. Would you be like, huh? 
I said, wait, wait, did you hear what I just asked you? It's not what I asked you. I asked you about the temple being destroyed. Why are you talking about people leading me astray? But Jesus answers them with this. And we'll look in just a minute. That why is it going on? Why is there this seem to be two different mindsets? Why is this what Jesus would go to about being led astray when they're simply asking about the destruction of the temple? So clearly Jesus knows something that they don't know, and he's about to tell them. So we'll see that in just a second. But first, let's deal with what he says in his answer. Jesus says, many will claim to be the Messiah, and they will lead many astray. And down in verse 11, look what he says, something very similar. He says, and there will be many false prophets. So in response to the question, when will you destroy the temple? Jesus says, listen, there's going to be many people who, who say it, the Messiah is here, and they're going to lead many people astray. Don't let that happen to you. And there's going to be many false prophets who preach a different gospel. Don't fall for it. Now, when I got to this portion of the text... I had a hard time relating. Do y'all feel that? Like right now, are you going, oh, yes. I'm worried I'm going to fall for a fake Jesus. Is anyone feeling that? Nobody's moving their heads. All right, we're going to interact. Stephanie Springer is a school teacher. She's had my daughter all these, this whole year. And she said, your class, my da- your daughter's class does not interact with me. I need help. So I need help. Interact. All right, so when, when uh, Jesus says, don't fall for false messiahs, do you just go, yeah, I'm worried about that? No, I just don't, I don't feel like I'm going to fall for a fake Jesus, a false messiah. I don't think if someone said, hey, I'm the real messiah. Jesus is not the messiah. I just don't feel worried that I'm going to fall for that. And I think that's exactly where the disciples were. The disciples are thinking, it's time, man. I've been following Jesus all this time, and he just announced that he's going to, the, the temple's going to be destroyed, and he's going to come, and he's going to set up his own throne. It's time to set up the kingdom, and it's about to go down, and he's warning me about following some false messiah. Why is he telling me this? You know, every generation has their false messiahs. In Jesus' own day, there was a false messiah. And we read about it in Acts chapter 5, verse 36. It says in his own day, there was a man named Theodos who deceived over 400 people. 400 people were duped to believe that Theodos was the long-awaited messiah. In our own day, well, in half of our own day, in 1993, many of you weren't, wouldn't call that your own day. In 1993, David Koresh led 79 followers in Waco. He convinced them to die with him in a fiery compound that he was the final prophet. But I still don't feel that concerned about that. Well, maybe we don't have as much concern. Maybe maybe that's not the biggest place that it touches our lives. We pray that the Lord will we'll protect us and keep us faithful. And we pray that we will not be duped by anyone with, that claims, false claims to be the Messiah. But perhaps the greater danger is the false prophet. Now, what is a false prophet? A false prophet doesn't say, hey, you know, that gospel about Jesus, that's not true. I mean, there are false prophets that say that. But I don't think that's the one that's gonna be hard for us. The false prophet that's going to be hard for us just has little nuances, just small little tweaks to our gospel message. What is the gospel message? The Bible is crystal clear that we are sinners 
and we are condemned and we deserve the wrath of God because of our sin. But by the grace of God, he made a way of escape from that condemnation. He made a way to be saved from the coming wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. And that way of salvation, that way of escape is a gift of grace. That he says here, if you will put your faith in the God-man Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for you, then I will give you credit for his righteousness. I will save you from your sins and from the, the coming wrath of God. Now, everything in our flesh, if we're honest, resists most of that message. We don't like to hear we're sinners. We don't like to be told that, the, that we deserve wrath. I like you to tell me how good I am. I like you to tell me how I'm getting better. So I want to hear the message that I'm a pretty good guy, but I could be better, and Jesus makes me a whole lot better. That's the message of the false prophet. The false prophet wants to tweak little nuances of that message. Don't say we're condemned. That's just harsh. God is a God of love. There's even a verse that says God is love. So how could you say that I could be condemned or someone could be condemned for their sins? A loving God would never send a person to hell. This is what a false prophet sounds like. That, it, that if someone is sincere, they may be misguided, but, but God's not going to turn away someone who is sincere. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. How could you say such an exclusive judgmental claim? That's what the false prophet sounds like today. And I think that is much more tempting to us. Because we can resonate with some of those thoughts. We know in our heart, yeah, that's, that's hard. And so what Jesus is saying, first of all, to us, as we want to know the answer to the question, he says, before we go any further, let me just warn you. Don't fall for the subtle changes of the gospel. There's only one gospel. There's only one salvation. And there's only one who can save, and his name is Jesus Christ. And it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so as we continue to look at what he says in their response to the first question, he, <clears throat> he warns them, don't be led astray by false prophets or false messiahs or false gospels. But next, in verses 6 through 8, Jesus says, and don't be alarmed. And I'm sure they're going, where is he going with all this? I mean, you just said it's about to go down. I'm not alarmed. I'm amped. This is about to go down. I'm excited. So he says in verse 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but then, excuse me, this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Okay, so now we're starting to see Jesus is warning them not to be led astray, not to be alarmed, because he knows something they don't know. He knows it's not about to go down exactly like they're thinking. They're thinking it's about to happen, and it's going to happen fast. He's going to destroy the temple. He's going to build his own structure. He's going to put a throne. He's going to sit down. He's going to gather his armies, and we're going to, we're going to rock this place right now. And they're amped, and he says, Wait a minute. 
You need to understand, don't fall, false, don't fall for false prophets or false gospels. Don't follow anybody else who's got some contrary message. Don't be alarmed when you see what's about to happen. Well, what's about to happen? You're going to hear about wars. You're going to hear rumors of wars. You're going to see earthquakes. You're going to open up your Twitter account. You're going to hear about earthquakes and mudslides and volcanoes in, in, in beautiful places like Hawaii. You're going to hear about nuclear war with North Korea. You're going to hear about China and how they're going to do cyber war against us. And you're going to hear about Russia. And you're going to hear about collusion. And you're going to hear about takeover of our government. You're going to hear all kinds of crazy stuff. And I want you to know this is not the end. I want you to know you're going to experience all kinds of turmoil. And when things go crazy and things don't go as you expected, if you think the end is now and there's this long delay and there's tribulation and there's persecution and there's conflict and there's wars and rumors of wars, you're going to follow anybody that seems like they know what's going on. And he says, I'm telling you, don't fall for it. Don't lose focus. Don't forget what I've told you. It's going to be a challenging, difficult season before I come. But the end is not yet. And so Jesus is expanding their horizon. Jesus is creating this this gap between the two advents is what it's referred to as. The first advent is when Jesus came the first time. His, his arrival, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension back to the right hand of the Father where he took all power on the throne. And then there's this long delay that they weren't expecting that Daniel said it'll be a long delay that you weren't expecting. This long delay before the second advent when Jesus comes back as the conquering victorious king. And so he's telling them there's a long delay and, and that's where we live. We live in the middle of the long delay. And he says, now that long delay is filled with difficulties and trials and tribulation and persecution and wars and rumors of wars and kingdoms rising up against kingdom. And he says, listen, I want you to know that's coming and I don't want you to fall for false messiahs or false prophets or buy into some false gospel." I want you to stay faithful during this delay because all this is just the beginnings of birth pains. Now, dads in the room, we know what birth pains are like. Amen. Can I get amen, brother? You and I are dead after this service. (laughs) Birth pains. You know, it's such a radical concept to have a baby. It is so violent that we have classes to say, let me tell you what's about to go down. Can you imagine going through the birth of a baby not knowing that that was about to happen? You would be like, oh my word, something has gone terribly wrong. I need someone with answers and anybody that just remotely looked like they had a clue. Tell me what's going on. You'd follow anybody. And so you go to Lamaze class. This is what's going on. Jesus has basically given the first Lamaze class to his disciples. He's telling them, man, this is birth pains. It's about to get ugly. And I want you to know that this is pain and it will be pain for a season before the long-awaited one arrives. Now, I remember in our birthing class, Dana loves it when I talk about her, in our, especially this subject. In our birthing class, they told us, all right, here's how it's going to go down. The pain will start in the back and it will come to the front. It will start in the back and it come to the front. And I'm just like, okay. 
I got this. I'm writing notes like it's going to happen to me or something. And I'm like, yeah, what happens next? And they're like, and it will start at this frequency, and it will become more rapid and shorter frequencies until finally it's time to have that baby. And so one day, many months later, we're, I still remember 552 Oakley right next door to Jordan's old house. And we were sitting there, and Dana was in the dining room, and I see her just doing this. She's just like, oh, my back hurts. And I'm like, <laughs> what would you say? Oh, nothing, nothing. My back was just kind of bothering me. It's kind of achy. And I'm like, all right. Maybe 15 minutes later, I don't know, 10 minutes, 12 minutes, she's like, man, my back's hurting again. I'm like, okay. And she's like, oh, it's starting to kind of like hurt up here. I'm like, oh, no. And I'm like, you know what this is? She goes, huh? I was like, there's a contraction. She's like, no, it's not. She's in total denial. And she's like, no, it's not. I'm like, it is. It's happening every 10 minutes. No, it's not. I'm like, time it. It's happening every nine minutes. And I'm like, it's happening every eight minutes. Well, Dana does not want to go to the hospital. That's not her favorite place. She's like, I am not going in until I absolutely have to. I'm like, well, we're going in before that happens in this house. I mean, I know nowadays it's cool to bathtubs and all that. No, no, we're going there. We're plugging up. I'm getting medicine. I mean, I, I can't endure it. I had to stand by her head and hold her hand for hours. That was hard. We had a room full of women, woman doctor, woman in the bed, woman nurses, and I was sitting there. We'd be standing there. She's squeezing my hand. I'm just like, oh, my, what I was like, my bad. We good? I just, my back's a little tired. Sorry. So we show up. Finally, I get her in the car. We go up to the doctor's office, and I walk into the nurse's station, and, you know, we got all our luggage and everything. We're like, hey, we're having a baby. It's time to roll. They're like, oh, okay. Is this your first one? Yeah. They're like, oh, go sit down over there. I'm like, oh, no, this is real. They're like, yeah, it's probably just not really time yet. I'm like, I think it's time. She's waited at home a long time. Finally got in the room. They're like, call the doctor. It's time for the baby. I was like, I told you. It's time. I can tell you how long it's been. So Jesus is warning them. You are in a season of birth pains. You're waiting. You're excited for the long arrival of the one you've been waiting for. But you need to understand how this goes down. Because if you don't understand what's going on, you will panic. You will be alarmed, and you will look for anyone who has answers. So Jesus is saying, in this time that we live, you need to expect difficulty. You need to expect trials. You need to expect tribulation. He explains this in verse 9. It says to them, then they will deliver you. Speaking to those disciples, they will deliver you over or up to tribulation, and they will put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. So Jesus warns those disciples sitting on the mountain with him. You need to know how this is going to go down. There's going to be a delay, and that delay is going to be filled with characterized by conflict, characterized by tribulation, characterized by persecution, characterized by many crazy scenes that will unnerve you. And he's saying, just know this is coming. You don't have to look any further than the book of Acts to see all this play out. Jesus told them, and it happened. In Acts chapter 4, we see the church, this first group of the early disciples of Jesus after he's ascended into heaven after his resurrection, and we see the church just 
just gathering in prayer. Read Acts 4. It's so emboldening. It's just, wow, these people were passionate about the advancement of the gospel in the midst of this persecution. They were praying, oh God, make us bold. Make us bold proclaimers of the gospel. Lord, give us courage that we would not shrink back in fear. And, he's, and they're praying and, and the gospel is going forth. It's Acts chapter 7, in the midst of all this persecution, we read Stephen was stoned and killed by stone. They killed him for his faith in Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 12, we learn that James was killed because of his faith in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 11, we read about the incredible suffering that believers went through of beatings and flogging, imprisonment and torture. We see the apostles were constantly thrown into prison and God miraculously protecting them and accomplishing his purposes in them. In Revelation 2, we read about the tribulation the church will experience through all the ages. And so lest we think this was just for them, turn to John chapter 17 and listen to Jesus praying for his disciples in what is called the priestly prayer. Jesus is praying to God about his followers and he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of this world, just as I am not of this world. In verse 15, John 17, 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. Protect them. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Make them holy in the truth. Set them apart in the truth. And your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, Jesus prays to the Father, I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I, Jesus says, consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. He's going to the cross for the sake of his disciples. And then verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for you. For those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus clearly expected all of us to be going through the similar experiences that those disciples went through. He prayed for you, that God would keep you from the evil one, that you would be sent in the world knowing that he has not taken you out of this world because he has you on mission to take the gospel into the persecution to experience the suffering that comes with the gospel, to enter into Christ's sufferings. He says it's going to be hard. We know he believes it. He's praying, God, be with my children as I send them out into this hard world. And so what do we need? Verse 13 of our text today, 24, 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. We need endurance, we need perseverance, we need God to strengthen us. We need courage. We need boldness. We need to be brave. We need to be strong. God says, 
Jesus says to you today, I'm sending you out. I'm praying for you. Be bold, be courageous, endure to the end because only those who endure to the end will be saved. And guess what? When we stand and we see all this talk about craziness in this world, about nuclear wars and about all this junk that's going on, and we're just like, Lord Jesus, come. And he says, when the gospel reaches the last person to the ends of the earth, that's when I'm coming. You want me to come? You want to hasten the day? Then get out there and share the gospel. For then the end will come. I've got good news about all this persecution. If you read the book of Acts, you know what was accompanying all that persecution of the church? Where did the church start out? They were in Jerusalem. And in Acts 1.8, it says the gospel must go to the ends of the earth. It will go from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You know how the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria? Persecution. As they were fleeing for their lives, they took with them the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as they were going, the gospel was going forth. And as they were persecuted beyond Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, to Rome, the known world then, we see the gospel going all the way there. That's how God works. This persecution is not catching God off guard. He's telling us beforehand, this is part of my plan. I will advance the gospel through the persecution. I will use that as a refiner's fire. I will make the church an incredibly passionate, holy place. When you experience persecution, it radically changes your prayer life. When the church is being persecuted, people are flocking to the word of God, clinging to the gospel, holding each other's hands, praying to God, give us faith. Give us courage. Make us fruitful. Lord, accompany the gospel with your miraculous signs. Lord, do whatever it takes because this is not a human endeavor. We cannot do this apart from you, God. That's what persecution produces in the church. It produces a deep reliance upon the power of God, and that is a glorious thing. That is what we need. And so the The persecution is a gift from God. It takes like the refiner's fire, it takes the impurities out of the precious metal. And so we don't see this as a negative bad thing where we're just in this holy huddle praying, God, just just help me survive. He says, no, I'm going to use this for my glory. I'm going to use this. I have great things in store for you. You should praise me like they did as they left their prisons, rejoicing for sacrificing so much for the gospel. Oh Lord, let me have that kind of heart. So God uses the persecution. God is faithful to take all that's going on and he's got it as a part of his plan. God says, I'm telling you beforehand, this is going to happen. He warns his disciple, very difficult days are coming. And in fact, in the next verses, it's crazy difficult. In verse 15 and following, and I realize it's 1127. And you're like, really? I'm going to move fast. In verse 15 and following, it says, So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. He's, just, he's got his scriptures with his disciples. And he's going, you remember in Daniel... When he talked about the abomination of desolation, remember that? He says, when you see that happening, they're going, wait, what? He says, when you see that 
abomination of desolation talked about by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand what's going on here. Know the word of God and have understanding of what's going on when it's going down. Then he says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house. There won't be time for that. Let the one who's in the field not turn back and take his cloak. And his last for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight might not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation. Such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Very difficult passage to know. Is this talking about A.D.? In A.D. 70, there was a Jewish-Roman war that was just terrible. In A.D. 68, the Romans had surrounded, they had seized the city of Jerusalem and choked off all the supplies, and it was just an ugly, terrible scene that has a lot of these characteristics in it. He talks about hope that this doesn't happen or pray this doesn't happen during the Sabbath. So it seems to me like he's talking about at least some of this happening during that time, that old covenant time, during the Sabbath time. And in 70 AD, the temple was completely destroyed. Not one stone of the temple was left standing on the other stone, just as Jesus said would happen. For a believer who was thinking that Jesus was about to step up and sit on his throne... And all this wars and rumors of war and Jesus is gone and the temple's destroyed, the center of our faith. What in the world is going on? If Jesus hadn't told them, they wouldn't have a chance. But Jesus says, I'm telling you what's going on. Don't be betrayed by false disciples or false prophets or changed nuanced gospels. Now, some people say, I don't think that was fully. There's some future talk about never will be like this again. And so some people say this is just illustrated in 70 AD, but it's actually referring to what other texts seem to indicate is a specific seven-year period of tribulation still yet to happen in the future, that there's going to be a rapture, and then it's going to be literally hell on earth, no church, no Holy Spirit's presence, and it's going to be awful. Whatever the case may be, The scriptures are crystal clear. We live in a time of persecution, tribulation, trials, calamity, chaos, disaster, pain. It's going to be difficult until he comes back. And Jesus is saying, I've warned you, don't be caught off guard. Don't be alarmed. Don't fall for any false leaders or false gospels. And so we finally get to the main point. I think Billy Ocean, the great theologian, sang it best. When the tough gets going, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. You're welcome for that. Jesus says in 23, 28, I have told you beforehand. I have told you beforehand. That's what he's saying. I told you this was going to happen. It's going to get tough. 23, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ... There he is. Don't believe it. False Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray even, if possible, even the elect. But see, I have told you beforehand. 
So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out there. If they say to you, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west across the whole sky, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. You will know when he comes. It's not going to be a secret coming. You don't have to follow anybody into some secret compound to find the Messiah. He's going to be crystal clear. He's going to come as a victorious, conquering king. And there will be two people on that day. Those who are rejoicing and hit their knees and worshiping the king of kings, the long-awaited Messiah, has finally arrived. And those who will meet their dreadful end because they have rejected the Messiah. Which will it be? God's word gives us what we need to know. God gives us beforehand how it's going to go down, what to expect, the true gospel and the one true Messiah. So Jesus is saying, I'm coming again, but you're living in that time between the first advent and the second advent, and it's going to be characterized as a period of pain. There will be difficulty. There will be trials. But I have you here for a purpose. Why are we still here? The gospel must be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. We must endure. We must persevere. That two ways that we persevere. One, we don't nuance the gospel. We don't change it. We don't tweak it. We don't tinker with it. The word of God must stand. Not one word of God will pass away. He has spoken and it is true. And this is the supreme authority of our lives. We submit ourselves to the word of God. We don't stand over the word of God. The word of God stands over us. And we persevere, endure by forking up the bucks to send missionaries to the end of the earth. By going to our workplace and making disciples, by raising our kids to know Jesus and teaching them the gospel, by sharing it in our neighborhoods, on the sidelines, at the soccer field, at a work exercise place, wherever we go, as we're going, we understand we've been sent. And all of our resources are to be stewarded according to this mission, to send the gospel to the ends of the earth from neighbors to nations. May this be true of our church until the Lord returns. Father God, we love you, and we praise you, and we desperately need you. I pray, Lord, that we will be found faithful on the day you come. I pray that the Norris Ferry Church will be standing firm, a beacon of light in the Shreveport, Bossier community, sending missionaries to be beacons of light all throughout this community, this city, this region, Arklatex, down to New Orleans, across to international countries beyond. Pray that we'll be doing it in our families, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, the community. will be godly influences wherever we go. The day you come, you will find us persevering despite any and all difficulties that we might face and will face, and that all of it will be bringing great glory to your name until we await that glorious day. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.